we're continuing the topic that happened last week. If you remember last week, we, we noted a couple of very interesting dynamics that were happening or dynamic that was going on at, after they won the, uh, put down the rebellion of Absalom and his men. So we noted that David was mourning Absalom in a, uh, in a way that was causing issue for his soldiers, right? And then Yoav told him in no uncertain terms that he needs to proclaim his happiness at their victorious uh, turn. And that was one thing that the people were already a little bit confused about, that David did not seem to be where he wanted him to be. But then we started talking about two other factors that happened. And one factor seemed to be a very small story, and it was about Siva, who had deceptively convinced David that Mephibosheth, who was a descendant of Shaul, was indeed not on his side in the rebellion. And therefore, David ends up splitting the lands that belonged to Shaul, to Saul, and he gives them half to Tziva and half to Mephibosheth. And we saw that Talmudic passage that explains that because of this, this is actually what leads to David having to, later on, the Davidic dynasty ends up being split because, specifically because of, because of the fact that he split up this, uh, this, this uh, individual's land, right? Then we also said that in terms of an actual physical and mechanical reason why they're going to have a split between the tribes of Judah and the rest of Israel, also the roots for that began in the last week's chapter. And that had to do with the fact that David went over to the tribe of Judah to try to get them on his side. And we saw there was this conversation between Judah and Israel. And Israel said, you shouldn't be leading David back. We should be leading David back. We're 10 and you're only one. And Judah was like, well, we came first. And there was a tension over there. And if you remember, it finished on a note of tension where they're arguing, right? You don't, it's not even so clear what the tension is, but they're just, they're arguing the tribes, all the other tribes and the tribe of Judah are arguing. Now, into this vacuum, into this void where it's not yet so clear if David's going to be taking over and, and reuniting everyone, someone steps in. And let's see who this individual is. A so how come, I just have a question about uh, David. So how come he, I mean, previously he used to consult either with the Navi or with God, you know, directly. And now it seems as if he's taking all kinds of decisions by himself. That's a, that's a good point. Does it feel like, I don't know, it seems as if maybe he's lost any, um, you know, um, he feels alone and he doesn't take consultant in anyone. Any, I don't know. Some well, it's an interesting desperate. point. You do get that sense. Uh, he, he is listening to Yoav, right? He was listening to Yoav's instructions. Ultimately, he does listen to Yoav's instructions. Part of what he was doing was certainly an emotional response. The emotional response is, it is what it is, right? It's hard, hard to govern emotions, right? Uh, but in terms of, yeah, asking, should I go to Yehuda first or should I go to the other, other tribes first? He doesn't seem to be consulting with Nathan Hanavi, right? Who is still alive at this point, right? Nathan the or, prophet. Is or even alive. Mephibosheth, or even, you know, taking his uh, property and dividing it. Right, right. But yeah, that's true. That's a good point also. Yeah, yeah, we do not see him doing that. Yeah, we see him making more, more seemingly impetuous decisions. A scoundrel named Sheva, son of Bichri, Sheva, son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, happened to be there. So let's look at the Hebrew here for a moment, right? 
And the Hebrew says, Visham Nikra, Ishbelial, right? And he just happens to be here. There's an individual who sees this, he sees what's happening, and he spontaneously says, you know what? I'm going to pick back up that flag for my grandfather, or at least my, my tribesman, Shaul. I'm picking back up that flag. He sounded the horn and proclaimed, we have no portion in David, no shear in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, O Israel. Now, what is the, what, why is he calling him Jesse's son? What's the point of that, right? Well, what's the implication? So as we've learned in the past, that Jesse came from a relationship, Ruth, right? And Boaz. And Ruth, who was from the Moabite tribe, was a Moabite princess. It was questionable, at least in some people's eyes, as to whether or not her descendants were even considered to be Jews, right? So therefore, that's what he's trying to say. He's saying, hey, one second, this is that David, that David who, you know, we know if he's not even so clear, if he's really a, a full-fledged Jew. Every man to his tent, O Israel. All the men of Israel left David, all the men of Israel left David, and followed Sheva, Sheva son of Bichri. But the men of Judah accompanied their king from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Okay? So what we say over here is that the men of Judah, they still stay with David. So we're already seeing the foreshadowing of what's going to end up being the splitting of the tribes into the two southern tribes and then the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. David went to his palace in Jerusalem. And the king took the 10 concubines he had left to mind the palace and put them in a guarded place. He provided for them, but he did not cohabit with them. They remained in seclusion until the day they died in living widowhood. Now, first of all, what's going on here? What, why is he doing this to them? Second of all, why is this important right over here? It's like, it just seems out of place, right? We are told that there's a rebellion of Sheba ben Bechri, and now we're going to be told that there is a response to that rebellion. And then we have this little interjection in verse three that David, when he goes back to his palace, he takes the 10 women and puts them away. So first of all, in the technical question of what's the emphasis that he's not going to be with them anymore? So it's like this. David's own son had slept with these women. And once the son had slept with these women, so David did not feel that it was appropriate to be with them again. Now, why is it that he puts them in a guarded place? Why is it that they remain in living widowhood? So that has to do with the fact that the halacha is that a king's wife or a king's concubine can only engage in relations and become married to another individual who himself is a king. So there wasn't anyone else who David could have given these women to. So instead, we are told something that it, the, the Navi himself, the prophet himself, seems to be emphasizing that they are living in seclusion, right? It, the Navi is, the prophet, is trying to give us the sense of sadness that's happening over here. And it's unclear what David could have done differently, right? But you do get a sense that perhaps it is put in place right here is to say that partially this Sheva ben Bichri's rebellion is coming in response to David's actions at this time. The king said to Amasa, now, if you remember, who's Amasa? Amasa is David's nephew. He is the cousin of Abishai, Yoav, and Asael, right? If you remember, we are told about Yoav. Yoav has been David's general, very, very powerful general for, for a long time now right? His brother, he has two brothers, right? Abishai 
and Asael, right? Asael was killed after David consolidated his kingdom. Asael was chasing after Avner. If you remember Avner, it's I'm bringing this all up because it's going to come out. It's going to be important right here, okay? So Asael is the youngest brother of Yoav and Abishai, right? I should have made a chart. That would have made it a lot easier. So Asael is the youngest brother of Avner and Abishai. These are all nephews of David. Now, what happens is Asael is running after Avner because Avner is the general of Ishbosheth, who was the descendant of Shaul, who was trying to still keep up a separate kingdom after his grandfather died, right? So Avner was that general. Asael was very, very fast. He was chasing after Avner. Avner says, stop chasing after me or else I'm going to kill you. And then he ends up taking his spear and shoves it behind him so powerfully, it just goes right through Asael and he dies. And then what, what happened was after David wants to effect a reconciliation with Abner to show everyone that they could have unity again, right? That there was terrible fighting, but let's try to achieve a sense of unity. So what happens is when, when uh, Abner comes back to David, Yoav on his own goes to kill Abner in revenge for the fact that Abner killed his brother. And David was furious for Yoav with doing this. And David had to publicly mourn Avner to show the people that this was not on his command that Avner was killed. Okay? So once again, after a rebellion, after some sort of rift in the Jewish people, David says, you know what? In, to try to effect reconciliation and unity, we're going to take the highest general of the rebellion. Amasa, who was the highest general of the rebellion and was on the side of Absalom, and he takes him and replaces Yoav, his loyal general, with Amasa, right? Yeah, without, without getting into politics, but it'll be like the equivalent of, um, of, of Biden saying, we want, we want unity, so I'm going to make Mike Pence my, my, my vice president. It, 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 it doesn't even make any sense, right? So, but what David is recognizing is that this is something that was done in those days. And this was a standard that people would, okay, this is a way to affect unity, right? The relationships were not, you know, as clearly defined as they are today. So indeed, Amasa is now the, the main general of David. So David says to him, okay, call up the men of Judah to my standard, report here three days from now. Now, what essentially they're about to engage in is yet another campaign to try to effect that this rebellion is quashed. Amasa went to call up Judah. So the, the prophet tells us he goes to call up Judah. That is his intention. However, but he took longer than the time set for him. Okay. Now, if you look in the Hebrew, it says, right, which implies it wasn't that he was going to call them up and they just weren't responding so quickly. And that's why he took longer. It implies that there's some level of agency, of, of, um, of implication of Amasa himself for the fact that it took longer, right? Not that the task took longer, Amasa himself took longer, right? There's some level of blame being assigned to Amasa for having taken longer. And David said to Avishai, now, who's Avishai? Avishai is the younger brother of Yoav, right? So he's also a very powerful, uh, you know, uh, a, a leader of men. And he is also someone who is, he's also someone who's very powerful. He's also a nephew of David. But David is not ordering Yoav because Yoav has been demoted. So instead he orders Avishai. 
Now, Sheva, son of Bichri, will cause us more trouble than Avshalom. So take your Lord's servants and pursue him before he finds fortified towns and eludes us. Now, why is it that Sheva is going to cause more trouble than Avshalom, right? What is Sheva able to do that's more troublesome than Avshalom? So presumably the concern that David has is that Sheva actually comes from the tribe of Saul. Avshalom at least came from the tribe of David. So ultimately, it wasn't going to be able to affect a complete splitting of the tribes. But Sheva is more likely, because he comes from a different tribe, that he will keep the other tribes on his side, and it would actually affect a long-term split. Whereas if, if Avshalom's rebellion would have been successful, there's no reason that it would have split up the tribes into two separate groups. It would have remained as one group, which just wouldn't have been under the leadership of David. Okay? So... Yoab's men, the Kresi and the Plesi, uh, they translate it as the, I, I don't know where they get this from. Uh, in the Hebrew, it is Kresi and Plesi. So I guess if, if we could also say it as Kreti and Paleti, right? If we, if we pronounce this like a tough, right? So what happens? The Kreti and the Plesi, and all the warriors marched out behind them. They left Jerusalem in pursuit of Sheva, son of Bichri. So what's interesting to note is that we are told that they are Yoab's men, right? These are not Abishai's men. These are not David's men. They are Yoab's men. They were near the great stone in Givon when Amasa appeared before them. Now, where was Amasa supposed to be going? He was supposed to be going to get the tribe of Judah. Where is the tribe of Judah located? Where's their base? Their base is Hebron. What's he doing in Givon? Givon is where the tribe of Saul is located. But that's where he ends up. He ends up where, where, uh, where the tribe of Saul is located. Is and there, I must uh, Do we know what the great stone is? I no, I don't know. No. <laughs> I don't know. No. Maybe, maybe we do, but not me. <laughs> when Amasa appeared before them, Yoab was wearing his military dress with his sword girded over it and fastened around his waist in its sheath. And as he stepped forward, it fell out. Now, we are given a sense of, I'm just going to mute everyone. We are given a sense that there's a, a tension over here as Yoav steps forward, right? Amasa finds, Amasa finds himself right in front of them. And everybody's probably like, well, Amasa, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, uh, and Yoav steps forward. Now, the prophet describes for us, he steps forward, the sword falls out of its sheath onto the ground. Yoav said to Amasa, how are you, brother? Remember, they're first cousins. And with his right hand, Yoav took hold of Amasa's beard as if to kiss him, right? He sticks his hand out and, and he's about to, you know, maybe hug him towards him. And then what happens? Amasa was not on his guard against the sword in Yoav's left hand. And Yoav drove it into his belly so that his entrails poured out on the ground and he died. He did not need to strike him a second time. Yoav and his brother Abishai then set off in pursuit of Sheva, son of Bichri. Now, at first glance, this seems once again Yoav being hot-headed and Yoav even killing his own first cousin, right? 
And for what? For what purpose, right? So at first glance, when you're reading it, the thought is, well, this is the individual who was given the leadership over the armies above Yoav. And Yoav cannot stand to see someone on a higher level than him, right? And therefore he kills him. But I think it really has to do with what, what I was pointing out earlier. And it's really based on the Talmud. That the reason why he strikes him dead is not because he is afraid of a, a rival in David's eyes. The reason why he strikes him dead is because he is suspicious that he's on the other side still. The same way that he went over to Avshalom's side in the rebellion, maybe he's going over to Sheba's side in this rebellion. Let's look at a couple of sources a little later on now, then we'll come back to what we're reading. So one thing that I wanted to point out is the phrase that they made, Shevab and Bichri tells everyone, what's the phrase? We have no portion in David, no Shear and Jesse's sons. To your tents, O Israel. Look at this source. This source is... Um, this source right here is that in Kings 12.16, right? Now, this is in, in Kings, and this is after Shlomo HaMelech dies. And this is right when there is a split between Rechavam, who is the son of Shlomo, right? And Yeruvam, who is from Ephraim. And what happens? They answer the king, who is Shlomo HaMelech's son. We have no portion. David, no Shear, and Jesse's son. Why are we using the same exact phrase that Sheva ben Bichri used? Well, the answer is that this became sort of like the rallying cry of the people, the malcontents, the people who did not want to follow the leadership of Judah, did not want to follow the leadership of the Davidic dynasty. And this was the, their catchphrase that they used. So this is a, a rebellion that re resounded across or rebounded or rebounded actually across, uh, across history. Right. So this idea of the split between the, the tribe of, of Judah and the tribe and the other tribes, this idea of the split that has been going on again and again and again, this is something that will continue to happen until Mashiach comes. Right. So I just I brought this source, source number three, which is in Ezekiel. And it's a beautiful idea that describes the reconciliation between the tribe of Joseph and the tribe of Judah that will happen when Mashiach comes. Answer them, thus said the Lord God, I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and of the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will place the stick of Judah upon it and make them into one stick. They shall be joined in my hand. What does that mean, the stick of? The stick is a way of saying the rulership, right? The rulership is, is expressed by that staff, the staff that the ruler has in his hand. So you have the staff of Joseph, which is expressing the rulership, the leadership of Joseph. And then you have the staff of Judah, which is expressing the governance of Judah. And both of these sticks will come together into one stick. You shall hold up before their eyes the sticks that you have inscribed, and you shall declare to them. Thus said the Lord God, I'm going to take the Israelite people from among the nations they have gone to, and gather them from every quarter and bring them to their own land. I will make them a single nation in the land on the hills of Israel, and one king shall be king of them all. Never again shall there be two nations, and never again shall they be divided into two kingdoms. 
nor shall they ever again defile themselves by their fetishes and their abhorrent things and by their other transgressions. I will save them in all their settlements where they sinned and I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I, shall, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. There shall be one shepherd for all of them. They shall follow my rules and faithfully obey my laws. So what we are told is that this is not going to happen until Mashiach comes, right? There will always be fighting between these two different ideas, the two different philosophies that are expressed by Joseph's tribe and Judah's tribe, right? Although the Torah tells us when Moshe is dying, he gives a blessing that, that, uh, that, the, that the rulership shall not leave from the tribe of Judah. Unfortunately, many people across the ages have fought this idea. Okay. So let's go back up to the top and let's read about the pursuit of, uh, oh, you know, actually, sorry, one more, one more source that I wanted to look at. So source goes like this. So this is a Talmudic passage and the Talmud tells us a story, an interchange between Shlomo HaMalech and Yoav. So King Solomon said to Yoav, set aside Avner as you have prevent, presented a convincing argument that you're not liable for his death. In other words, he said, I'm not liable for Avner's death because Avner killed my own brother, Asael. And if someone who kills a sibling, or any of the relatives are permitted to kill the person who killed their close relative, right? This is what is called the Goel Hadam, the redeemer of blood, right? So if someone kills a, a Mr. A's relative, Mr. A is entitled to be the one to carry out the death sentence on that individual. So King Solomon says to Yoab, well, what is the reason you called Amasa? Killed Amasa. Avner said to him, I killed Amasa in punishment for his having rebelled against the king, as it is written. And the king said to Amasa, muster to me the men of Judah within three days and be you here present. And Amasa went to call the men of Judah, but he was later than the set time that he had assigned to him. So the Talmud tells us that why is it that Yoab kills Amasa? He kills Amasa because he suspects him of harboring rebellious sentiments and that perhaps he himself is going over to the rebellion yet again. And to nip it in the bud and to nip these rebellious sentiments in the bud, he kills him. Definitely a, a little bit more of a, um, of a bloodthirsty kind of act than we're used to today. But in, in those days, they, people took uh, actions into their own hands, right? Now, back to verse 11. While one of Yoav's henchmen stood by the corpse and called out, whoever favors Yoav and whoever is on David's side, follow Yoav, right? So we're also given once again, a sense of how it's about Yoav almost at this point, more than it's about David. Amasa lay in the middle of the road, drenched in his blood, and the man saw that everyone stopped. And when he saw that all the people were stopping, he dragged Amasa from the road into the field and covered him with a garment. Once he was removed from the road, everybody continued to follow Yoav in pursuit of Sheba, son of Bichri. So I, I was wondering about this today. Like, what, what's the point of telling us this incident, right? That after he dies, he's in the middle of the road and nobody wants to go any further until he's removed from the road. Then everyone can continue to follow him, right? What's the point of telling us this? So I was thinking that maybe the point of telling us this is that Amasa was an obstacle, right? The prophet is trying to in, imply to us that Amasa was indeed an obstacle in the pursuit of 
Sheva ben Bechri, because Amasa did have sentiments favoring Sheva ben Bechri. Sheva had passed through all the tribes of Israel up to Abel of, Baal, of Beth Ma'acha. And all the Be'erites assembled and followed him inside. So indeed, he gets into a fortified city. He makes it there. Why? David was concerned he would get to a fortified city. How did he make it to a fortified city? Because Amasa was derelict and Amasa was not doing his job properly. Yoav's men came and besieged him in Havel of Bet Ma'acha. They threw up a siege mount against the city and it stood against the rampart. All the troops with Yoav were engaged in battering the wall. When a clever woman shouted from the city, listen, listen, tell Yoav to come over here so I can talk to him. He approached her and the woman asked, are you Yoav? Yes, he answered. And she said to him, listen to what your handmaid has to say. I'm listening, he replied. And she continued, in olden times, people used to say, let them inquire of Abel. And that was the end of the matter. I am one of those who seek the welfare of the faithful in Israel. But you seek to bring death upon a mother city in Israel. Why should you destroy the Lord's possession? In other words, she says to Yoav, why are you besieging an entire city for one individual? What did we do wrong that the entire city deserves to die? Yoav replied, far be it, far be it for me to destroy or to ruin. Not at all, but a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim, named Sheba, son of Bichri, has rebelled against King David. Just hand him alone over to us and I will withdraw from the city. The woman assured Yoav, his head shall be thrown over the wall to you. The woman came to all the people with her clever plan and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri and threw it down to Yoav. He then sounded the horn. All the men dispersed to their homes and Yoav returned to the king in Jerusalem. Yoav was commander of the whole army of Israel, once again restored. Benaiah, son of Yehoiada, was commander of the Kretites and the Platites. Adoram was in charge of forced labor. Yehoshaphat, son of Achilud, was recorder. Sheva was scribe, and Sadok and Eviatar were priests. Ira, the Yairite, also served David as priest. Okay. So that's the end of this chapter, but now we're going to have a lot of interesting sources. So first we're going to read a, a fascinating midrash that tells us uh, the backstory of who this wise woman was and what exactly her, her uh, reasoning was. So let's look over here at source number, I guess it's number six. This is a midrash Tanchuma. Uh, it's called the Tanchuma Buber because there was an individual whose name was not Martin Buber, right? Who some of you may have heard of, but actually Shlomo Buber. Shlomo Buber, who was Martin Buber's grandfather and lived in the late 1800s and did a fantastic job traveling around to look at different editions of Midrashic collections to try to figure out which is the most authoritative and most authentic version. So that we, have a, we have a Tanchuma. Tanchuma Medrash is called the Tanchuma. Why? Because one of the primary uh, authors of it, and, and we're constantly quoting, is a man named Tanchum, right, which is actually still a, a name today even. Uh, it's a Jewish name today, Tanchum, right? Now, the Tanchum Abuber is the addition that he put together from different, uh, different uh, manuscripts, okay? Now, another interpretation of far be it from you. So this is the Tanchuma, and it is quoting the verses 
of when Abraham is speaking to God and God is telling Abraham, I am about to go destroy the city of Sodom. So what Abraham says back to God is, far be it from you, would the judge of the entire world engage in iniquity? Would you kill the innocent along with the guilty? Right? That's Abraham's famous complaint to God. If there were 50, would you not destroy them? If there were 40, would you not destroy them? And so on and so forth, right? So the Midrash explains like this. Abraham said, sovereign of the world, I see through the Holy Spirit that a certain woman is going to deliver an entire town. So am I not worthy to deliver these five cities? Which woman was that? That was Sarah Bat Asher. Who's Sarah Bat Asher? Who remembers Sarah Bat Asher? Anybody remember her? She's one of the only, the only uh, granddaughters of Yaakov who's counted in the 70 descendants of Yaakov who go down to Egypt, right? She is also counted later on when they're going into Israel, implying that she's still alive when they go into Israel. Now, how many years is it? It's minimum 250 years. How could someone survive that long? So the Talmud and the Midrash both explain that Serach Bat Asher was worthy of an incredibly long life in the merit of something that she did. And the merit is that the entire time that Yosef was missing from Yaakov for the 22 years, Yaakov was depressed, flat out depressed. And the only thing that kept him, kept him going was Serach Bat Asher used to come to his house and used to play the guitar and play music for him and put him in a good mood and talk to him. And therefore, when they found out that Yosef was still alive, she is the one who comes back and plays on her guitar and sings to him, Ani Yosef, right? Ha'od avichai. I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And as she sings that to him, he slowly sinks in that indeed his beloved son is still alive. In the merit of that deed, she merits to live a very long life. So the Midrash explains, who is this woman, the wise woman, who is able to negotiate with Yoav? Yoav is not someone to trifle with. In every single interaction that we have seen so far, Yoav is, it's his way or the highway. He gets his way, right? No matter what, by hook or by crook, with his left hand or his right hand, he gets his way. But Sarah Bat Asher, in the time that Sheva ben Bichri rebelled against David and came to Abel, as stated, then they came and besieged him in Abel. And all the people who were with Yoav were destroying the wall to throw it down. When Sarah perceived the situation, she began to cry out for Yoav. They called Yoav to her. When Yoav came, she said, are you Yoav? And he said, yes, you are a sage, since the scripture praises you as one who sits in the seat of wisdom in the academy. These words are commonly understood as the Proper, proper name, Yoshev Ba Shevet E Takemoni. But this Midrash, along with numbers, understands the passage as translated here. The attribution of the verse to Yoav, the head of David's army, is assumed because the person depicted here comes first in a listing of David's mighty men and is identified as the chief of David's captains. Let me explain what the Buber is coming to explain, what Rabbi Shlomo Buber is explaining. He's saying, that this midrash is basing it, is basing itself on an understanding of specific words in Samuel 2, chapter 23, verse 8. 
The listing contains no specific mention of Yoav. It does contain the names of Yoav's brothers and even his armor bearer. So she says to him, have you not read in the Torah, when you draw near onto a city to fight against it, you shall offer terms of peace onto it. Thus, was it not up to you to do so? In other words, Yoav, why are you not offering terms of peace? If you have an issue with us, explain to us what you want us to do. To come to a city and just immediately attack it, besiege it and start destroying it. That's not what God wants you to do. They used to speak in early times. Whoops. Back up. They used to speak in early times, saying, let them surely ask in Ava. You shall surely offer terms of peace onto it, a hostile city. Then it shall be, if it makes you an answer of peace. So therefore, let them surely ask in Ava. And that was the end of the matter. So why would you devour the Lord's heritage, right? Why are you breaking the Torah? When he heard that, Yoab became afraid and said, there is a requirement here, as stated. Then Yoab answered and said, Far be it, far be it. What's this far be it? What they're trying to say is like this. Note that these words return the argument to Genesis 18.25, in which the same context as Yoav saying, could it, could it be that I would destroy an entire city over one individual? It's the same idea as when Abraham tells Hashem, could it be that you would destroy an entire city when there are yet righteous individuals there? In other words, the concept of saying, can someone who is only doing what is just, can they possibly kill innocents along with the guilty? But you, since you are a merciful God, is it pleasing for you to destroy these? Far be it from you to do such a thing. We're going back now to speaking about Abraham. To put to death a righteous person along with a wicked one, so that the righteous one fears like the wicked, Far be it from you. Now, what did Yoav say to her? The situation is not the same. For a man from the hills of Ephraim named Sheva ben Bichri has raised his hand against King David. Sheva is a man with a blemish, one who serves idols. Now, there happened to be there a man of Belial whose name is Sheva ben Bichri. She said to him in verse 19, I am the Shalume of the faithful in Israel. I am one of those who seek the welfare of the faithful in Israel. What's the Madras trying to point out over here? The Madras is saying, one second, all the Torah tells us is a wise woman. What, the only wise woman we could ever think of is, is Sarah Bat Asher? We can't think of any other wise woman that we have to say that that must be who it is? The Madras is saying, no, there's a hint to who it is. Because the language that she uses is, I am the Shlume. I am the one who completed, Shalem, complete, the number of Israel, as stated, and the name of Asher's daughter was Asher. Was Sarah. The total of Jacob's house who came into Egypt was 70 persons, but those named number only 69, including Joseph, his two sons, and Sarah. The extra person comes from counting Sarah twice because of her long life. Okay, so this is why they assume that this is indeed her. I didn't, I didn't really understand. If she was alive at the time of the um, tribes, then how come it's the same person? What are you, what are you asking? How I mean, is she... Yeah, I mean, you said 250, but there were more, more years than 250, right? 
Correct. But at this point, you know, if I told you that someone is alive for 250 years, if you're willing to accept that, would you be willing to accept that that person's alive for 600 years? At what point would you say, nah, that's just not possible? I would say the 250, I guess. <laughs> I would have said earlier than that. I, remember, at this point, people are not living a long time. Most yeah, of exactly. 120. And I that's mean, the after Metushelach, they already, it was a downhill. Yeah, it was definitely downhill already, yeah. You know, I, I passed by a, a cryobank today, C-R-Y-O-B-A-N-K, and I was thinking about Ted Williams, because Ted Williams, uh, famously uh, the, the Boston Red Sox player, he uh, had his head uh, put into um, in cryotherapy, where basically they freeze it, so that way if they ever get a te technology where they're able to uh, resuscitate him, they'll be able to do so with his head. Um, so yeah, so that's not a big thing in Judaism. That being said, what the Midrash is telling us, and this is based on, you know, Talmud says the same idea, that he, she basically lives until a, a very old age, until she finally says, I'm kind of done with this world, and she gets to go up into heaven without actually dying, so to speak. Okay? Um, just stay in your place and I will make peace. Thus it is stated, behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And so she had confidence in herself that she would deliver his head to Yoav. But see what she did, right? Then the woman came on to all the people in her wisdom. What is the meaning of in her wisdom? Simply that she said to them, understand that Yoav and all Israel are standing outside to kill us, our sons and our daughters. They said to her, why? She said to them, he would take a hundred people and go. They said to her, let him take 200. She said to them, he only wants about 50 people. They said to her, let him take a hundred. She said to them, he only wants five. They said to her, let him take 10. She said to them, he only wants one, whose name is Sheba ben Bechri. When they heard that, they immediately went and cut off his head. She promised Yoav that she was actually going to give him Sheba ben Bechri's head. She initially goes over to the people. She doesn't say, we have to kill one of us. Because if you go over to those people and you say, you have to kill one of you, most people will say no. But then what she says is we're going to have to give up hundreds of us. Okay, maybe not hundreds, maybe 50. Okay, maybe you, you already set the bar very differently. And now when you say the only thing that we have to do is just give up this one person who is evil, they immediately went and cut up his head. Rabbi, what are you reading from now? You, you, this, I mean, that's not the part of the Tanakh or anything. No, no. This, no, this, uh, it's a Midrash. It's a Midrash from Tanchuma. Oh. Uh, a part of this midrash is also found in Pirkei de Rebeliezer, which is, these are both relatively early midrashic collections. Okay? But it, it's definitely midrash, 100% midrash, right? But what we're, trying to, what we're trying to get over here is a, a more of an understanding of what's the backstory of this wise woman, right? Um, look at the and, wisdom. And then you, you taught us that if, if, um, if somebody would ask, you know, someone to, to, to give someone to, to die, if they name the person, then it's allowed, according to Jewish law, right? We're going to get there soon. We're going to get there soon. Oh, okay. you, you know the answer already because you came to that class, but yeah. Yeah, and, and I have another question. I mean, the, the division between Israel and Yehuda, actually Benjamin was part of Yehuda, right? Correct. Um, in, the, in the division. But here we see that uh, this uh, Bichri and, the, and Saul, they both came from, from Benjamin, actually. So they were supposed to be part of the, the Judah tribe, right? 
that's an interesting point. Well, what you read is pointing out is when we think of that, the we have the 10 tribes and then we have the other two tribes, right? So we think of the 10 northern tribes. What do we find? We find the 10 tribes and then the other two tribes are actually Judah and Benjamin, right? But yet over here, we find that Benjamin is actually the one primarily on the other side. It's an interesting point you're bringing up. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly at what point that, that changes, but it does change as you're saying. So look at the wisdom of this woman. In the same way, Abraham came in wisdom before the Holy One. He came down from 50 to 40, from 40 to 30, from 30 to 20, and from 20 to 10. So also with this woman. Then the woman came unto all the people in her wisdom. Regarding her, Solomon gave praise. Wisdom is better than instruments of war. The wisdom of Sarah was better than the instruments of war that were in the hands of Yoav. When Yoav received the head of Sheva ben Bechri, he immediately went back without touching the city. Abraham said to the Holy One, Sovereign of the world, Master of the universe, now if Yoab, when he took the head of one person who was guilty, left the whole city alone, would you who are merciful destroy everyone? Far be it from you. Okay? Now, I, I want to point something out about Midrash. This is a very important point, I think. I think we've, we've mentioned it in the past, but I just want to point it out again. Um, I want to quickly tell you guys a short, a short story that happened today. So I was looking for a, a tree, like a family tree of Avner and, not Avner, but Amasa and uh, Avishai, Asael, uh, Yoav, David, so Absalom. So just like to make it easier for everybody to see it all on a chart. So I found something on Wikipedia and the Wikipedia page on Asael says on it, there's like this warning on the top. Let, let, me, let me show it to you guys. Uh, here it is right here. This article uncritically uses texts from within a religion or faith system without referring to secondary sources that critically analyze them. Please help improve this article by adding references to reliable secondary sources with multiple points of view. Now, I find this fascinating. And the reason why I find it fascinating is because the analysis that they are undertaking is an analysis of a events that took place about uh, 2,800 years ago. Without the religious framework, there is nothing other than our own psychological input that we're going to put in today into the story, right? There is no analysis of a story that happened 2,800 years ago. There are no secondary sources of the story other than what has been handed down to us. The same way that the story itself was handed down to us in the way in which it was handed down to us, the Midrash came along with the backstory, right? So if I told you, right, here is a, uh, a document attesting to what happened in that time period, right? And that's essentially what the Tanakh is, right? It's trying to bring out the story in the most powerful way. And then I told you, and here's a story that a reporter wrote with a lot of additional detail. And he wrote this pretty soon after this, these events took place. Would we say to ourselves, oh, you know what? This doesn't really, I, I don't like this understanding. I think my understanding is more accurate, right? Or would we say, without having been close at all to this event taking place, and without being as familiar with the terminology that the prophet would use as the sages were, perhaps they just have a better understanding of what actually took place. So it is true that it is a midrash, but it's also true that the midrash 
is certainly going to do a better job of actually understanding and getting to the bottom of the story as it actually happened than we will come to with our understanding of Shakespeare and with our understanding of, of other books that we read and immediately thinking of linkages between other narratives in our lives than what the Midrash, which is written by the sages who know what the prophet has in mind and have a tradition that this is what actually happened in the story, they'll do a far better job of explaining to us the details and the backstory. Okay, so that's the story about how she's willing to give up this individual. So this is actually the source for, as Shirit pointed out, for the famous question, right? the, the halachic source, <coughs> excuse me, for the famous question, which is, what do you do when they are besieging a city and they tell you, you have two choices, either we kill all of you or give us one person? What do you do? Okay. So the Gemara has two opinions. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. The Mishnah, actually, going back to the Mishnah, right? So the Tanayim, we're going back 2,000 years ago. Their opinion is like this. If they surround a city and they say to you, give us any individual, just one, but give us any. You're not allowed to give up anybody and you have to allow everyone to die rather than choose which individual you're going to sacrifice to save everyone else. If, however, they say to you, give us a specific individual, the Tana teaches us, the author of the Mishnah teaches us, you're allowed to give up that individual. The example that they give is Sheva ben Bechri. Because when Yoav tells this woman, give up Sheva ben Bechri, indeed they give up Sheva ben Bechri. Now, when they bring this source of Sheva ben Bechri, that leads to a question. The question is like this. Perhaps you're only able to give up an individual when they name that individual, when that individual is actually worthy of the death penalty. In other words, Sheva ben Bichri deserved to die based on Jewish law. He was rebelling against the king, right? Which is worthy of death. So therefore, when they ask for Sheva ben Bichri, it makes sense that Sheva ben Bichri would be given up to save the rest of the people, right? So Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish, who's an Amora, he explains that indeed it is only permitted even if they name an individual, if they name an individual and he is worthy of being killed. But if they name an individual and he is not worthy of being killed, then you're not allowed to give him up and you all have to be willing to die. Rabbi Yochanan, who is also an Amora, right? One of the authors of the Gemara, he understands that no, as long as they name an individual, whether or not they are worthy of being killed of having the death penalty administered to them, either way, you're allowed to give them up to save everyone else's life. Okay, now let's look at this Rambam right here. So the Rambam is going to give us the actual halacha, right? So the Maimonides wrote his magnum opus is the, um, the Mishneh Torah, in which he writes all of the halacha that is found in all of, in all of Jewish law. And he, he collates it, he, he, systemize, he systemizes it in a way that is beautiful and very easy and clear to read. If idolaters will demand one of a group of women, saying, yield us one of the women among you, and we will defile her. If not, we will defile you all. Let all be defiled rather than surrender to them one soul in Israel. In other words, what we're recognizing over here in Judaism is that when you get involved in determining who will live and who will die, that is such a terrible defiling of your soul that it is preferable that 
they all have this malign activity happen to them rather than be involved in determining which one should be given up. Likewise, if idolaters will say to a group of men, yield us one of you and we will kill him. If not, we will kill you all. Let all of them be killed rather than surrender to them one soul in Israel. If, however, they single out the one saying, give us that man. If not, we will kill you all. If he be guilty of a capital crime, as for example, Sheva, son of Bechri, they may surrender him to them, but it is not commendable to advise them to do so. If he be not guilty of a capital crime, they all must submit rather than surrender them one soul in Israel. So the Rambam takes the more stringent position, and you're only allowed to give up the man even if he is actually guilty, right? Only if he's actually guilty, but not if he's not guilty. Now, that's the Rambam's position in Halacha. Can anybody point out what's actually different about the example that's being given and what they actually did to Sheva ben Bechri? What happened by Sheva ben Bechri? They killed him and they didn't give him the... They actually exactly. killed him. Exactly. So, so this is actually taking it a step further. So how do you know that you're only allowed to give up someone when he's actually guilty of the crime. Over there, they didn't just give him up, they killed him. They actively were involved in killing him. So that's a question. And, and in terms of the halachic determination, uh, the Rambam does have this opinion. There are others who argue on the Rambam and go like Rabbi Yochanan, right? Now this obviously has application, unfortunately. It, ha it has had application, I should say, uh, during World War II, right? The Yudinrat, right? The Jewish council that was in charge of each, uh, each ghetto they would be given a list of people, right? And they would have to choose, are they going to be willing to give up these people? Well, if they don't give up these people, then everyone's going to die, right? What, what should they do? If the law follows the opinion of a shlakish, they're only allowed to give up individuals if they're actually deserved to die. Nobody deserved to die. This is a tough question. It's a tough question and hopefully none of us will be faced with it. Uh, what Shirit was talking about is that uh, about I don't know, it was a long time ago already, almost a year ago now, um, I gave a class about trolleyology, right? Trolleyology is this, this type of idea where there's a trolley running down the track and it's out of control. And the only way to stop the trolley is to push it down a different track that will end up killing one individual. But otherwise, everybody on the trolley will die, right? Are you allowed to do that or not? And that question, really, the, the, the main topic that is used as the halachic source where we can start building the answer to that question really starts from this story in the prophets of Sheva ben Bichri. And that ends up being, it, 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 if I could walk you guys through it, it's way too long, but it, it would be a day. But to walk you guys through how it starts off as like one little proof from here, and then it's built and built and built to an incredible uh, tower of, of Jewish law that comes from the story of Sheva ben Bichri. Okay. How come uh, David never killed Yoav? I mean, Yoav uh, repeatedly defied him. And then it seems as if he said, okay, I'm not gonna kill him. I'll just ask Shlomo to do that. So how come he never killed him? So I, maybe we'll discuss that when we get up to why Shlomo is the one who kills him. When we get up to Milachim. He instructed him to do that. But I'm asking why, did the, why didn't David do it? I think we can talk about it then. I think that would be the right, okay. right place to talk. You know, what, why exactly? If he, he, he feels he is worthy of being killed, as you're pointing out, because he does instruct his son to kill him. So then why doesn't he just kill him himself? Why does he have to leave it for later? Right? 
And the, the simple answer would certainly be that for political reasons, he would, did not feel powerful enough to kill him at that point. That'd be the simple answer. The, um, in the uh, uh, Holocaust, the Judenrat did not get lists. They had to choose. They got a number they had to provide. So it was a lot worse than what was described. That's a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, th there is one advantage that there's actually a third opinion. That's neither of the two opinions that I said right now. And that third opinion has to do with if they would literally kill everybody anyways, right? Then it might change the dynamic. In other words, over here, what they're saying is if you don't give up, you don't give them up, then we're going to kill you but they're not really about to kill them at this moment. In other words, if let's say they're holding the gun to two people's heads right this second, and they're about to shoot those two people, and they say, we will shoot these two people unless you give us one of them, one of those two people who anyways is going to die, then you're allowed to give up that individual, according to everyone. Because if that individual is going to die no matter what, then you're allowed to give them up, right? So the, the, this case is a case where they're saying, we're going, to, we're going to kill all of you, but they might not end up killing that individual. The question is, is it within their, within their clear control at this moment to kill everybody? Then that might change the dynamic. But I'm not trying to excuse the, the Yudenrata. I'm not saying that what they did was necessarily always the, the right thing. Um, they made hard decisions um, and they had to live with those decisions. We, we can't judge anybody in the Holocaust. It's a, it's a different reality. I don't think that we can even try to judge. Correct, I'm in agreement with you, but in terms of analyzing, is this the correct move to do in a dispassionate way? We're not saying, are we judging them for doing the wrong thing? Not necessarily judging them for doing the wrong thing. It doesn't mean that we can't still be able to objectively say, is this the right thing or wrong thing, right? We're not saying, what would we have done in their place? I think all of us shudder to think about what we would have done in their place, right? But in terms of saying, is this actually correct? That's a little bit of a different question, right? The, the, the similar questions came up in the Holocaust that also have to do with a, a similar type of uh, idea. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating topic and really, it really all starts with this story right here and then with uh, the Jerusalem Talmud talking about it. Okay, very good. Take care, everyone. Be well.